Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing on in our series, Walking Through the Book Through New Eyes by James Jordan. And here the guys will be discussing chapter 16, The World of the Temple. We do want to keep you aware of our upcoming intensive course with Peter Lightheart in the month of March. That course will be on Paul and Pauline theology and will run from March 13th through March 17th. For more information about this class and to register, there is a link in the show notes. As always, we want to thank you so much for taking the time to listen, and we hope that you enjoy this conversation. And here are Peter Lightheart, Jeffrey Myers, and Alistair Roberts discussing Through New Eyes. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts and Jeff Myers. Uh, we're recording again on a day when James B. John is not with us. Uh, he was not feeling well. We, uh, our prayers are with him, and we hope he can rejoin us very soon. This week, we are talking about chapter 16 of James Jordan's book, Through New Eyes. Uh, this chapter is about the world of the temple. As I've described before on these podcasts, uh, uh, Jim's book is organized, the latter part of the book is organized as a, a series of studies of different covenantal orders. So at each stage, he's looking at the distinctive uh, symbolic polity of the order. Uh, what is the place of worship and what did that signify? Uh, and how did that signify the social polity, the way that uh, the people of God is organized? Uh, and he's looking at uh, we haven't spent much time talking about this, but he's looking at the way that the name of the people of God changes from covenant to covenant. So they start out as Hebrews, then they're sons of Israel. Uh, then they're uh, by the time you get to the end of the old covenant, they're Judahites. They're all Jews. They're all they're all honorary members of the the tribe of Judah. So each each covenant order has its distinctive name for uh, Israel, and also has uh, tends to have its distinctive name for Yahweh. You have. Uh, uh, El Shaddai among the patriarchs. Yahweh's name is revealed and explicated at the burning bush, and then even more fully on the on Mount Sinai when uh, Moses is hiding in the cleft in the rock. So Yahweh becomes the name of the God of Israel during this period in, in the uh, in the Mosaic era. As you go on, you go to the end of the end of the Old Covenant. Yahweh of hosts becomes the characteristic name. So he's looking at each of these uh, covenant orders and the distinctions between them. Today, we're talking about the world of the temple, which is, of course, the monarchy. So the symbolic polity of this age is the temple. The social polity is that Israel is reorganized as a, as a, uh, uh, as a, as a monarchical system. And I want to say a few words about that because I think uh, Jim's progressive understanding of how the Old Testament is put together, I think, has a lot of implications for how we understand the monarchy. There has been a tendency... I don't know if it's particularly American. I think it probably precedes America a little bit, but there's been a tendency to read the Hebrew order of the Mosaic order, Israel's political organization at the time they entered the land and were established in the land, to read that as kind of the ideal political order, the Hebrew Republic. And so it's a decentralized system. It's a system that doesn't have any standing army. There's no monarchy. There's no capital city. You don't have tax money that's being sucked into some kind of capital city. The ideal order, the, the ideal biblical order of po- political order looks a lot like uh, the U.S. prior to the Constitution, the U.S. under the Articles of Confederation, where you had this very decentralized system. And then if you take that as the ideal, then you move into the monarchy, and the monarchy looks like a declension. It looks like a decline from 
that ideal order. You have power centralized. You have a capital city. You have a monarch. Uh, you have a redistricting, a reorganization of the land. The tribal areas remain, but uh, they're overlaid with this this set of twelve tax districts, each of which is responsible for supplying the capital and the court one month out of the year. You have a reestablishment of the central sanctuary in Jerusalem, a permanent central sanctuary in Jerusalem, and again, that that all looks like it's uh, it's it's a decline. If you if you take the mosaic order as an ideal, then that looks like a decline and centralization. You're moving toward tyranny. And of course, that does happen in certain respects with, uh, you know, Saul has tyrannical features to his reign. Solomon certainly descends into tyranny and you have tyrants in the monarchy uh, during the time of the monarchy. But Jim's point is that overall, this is not a, this is not a declension or decline, but it's a movement of glory. You have certain degrees of glory and certain kinds of things that Israel is able to achieve under the monarchical system that they weren't able to achieve under the uh, under the uh, Amphictyony, as it's called, or the Republican system that preceded it. Uh, one of the things that I think is characteristic, one of the, one of the ways that the Mosaic or, or the Solomonic or Davidic order is an improvement on the on the Mosaic order is in, in, in relation to the Gentiles. This, again, is a theme that Jim highlights all the way through, through New Eyes, uh, and I think it's a really important theme. Israel is called from the beginning to minister to Gentiles, and Jim highlights the ways that at, at each stage of Israel's history that they are ministering to Gentiles. And I don't remember if we talked about this explicitly, but he describes during the patriarchal era, Abraham's establishment of altars around the land. He's establishing places of worship. He's having contact with the Hittites and others who live in the land. And Jim characterizes that as kind of Abrahamic evangelism. He's calling people to join him. He's establishing altars, not just for his little community, his traveling city, but he's establishing altars and inviting the Gentiles of the land to join in and share that worship. And you have different dimensions of that in the Mosaic order. Uh, Israel comes out of Egypt, a mixed multitude, which means not only descendants from Jacob, but also a bunch of people that are uh, that are Egyptians or other nationalities that have come and associated themselves with Israel during the time of the, probably during the time of the plagues in particular. But maybe even before that, you might've had people who were Egyptians that began to worship the God of Israel during the time of Israel's sojourn in Egypt. So you come out with a mixed multitude, and Jethro plays a prominent role, the Midianite that plays a prominent role uh, in the establishment of the Mosaic order. Of course, Israel's contact with the Gentiles in the land is primarily conquest, but there are some Gentiles who make peace with them and ally with them. But that that, uh, ministry to the Gentiles really takes a quantum leap forward when you get to the Davidic era and particularly during the reign of Solomon. Uh, the Queen of Sheba comes, That you have a long chapter about the Queen of Sheba's uh, visit to Jerusalem. You have hints about other kings coming to receive the wisdom of Solomon. Solomon constructs a fleet of ships to engage in trading. Ships themselves are a symbol of Gentile contact because you're going across the Gentile Sea in order to have contact with the islands and the, and the, uh, the other lands that are not accessible by land. Israel. So there are these um, all these elements of expansion to the Gentiles, and that's going to be that's going to be taken even further when Israel them uh, Israel is, is scattered themselves among the Gentiles during the exile, and of course taken further when you get to the new covenant and Jesus explicitly sends his disciples out to the nations. But that's one of the ways that the Solomonic Davidic order is an advance in glory. It's because it's 
uh, a greater fulfillment of Israel's mission to the nations and bringing them to uh, to share to, to receive the wisdom of the Lord, the wisdom that Solomon communicates, and to begin to worship the God of Israel. There's also a corresponding glorification in the worship, in the environment of worship. Tabernacle is uh, now becomes a temple, a stone temple, and glorified in many different ways. And Jim brings us out in the in the chapter. The most holy place is enlarged. The holy place is enlarged. The whole thing is enlarged and um, has just this greater gravitas. This, uh, you know, it's glorious. It's beautiful. And it is also much more decorative. Um, now, I think this is important to point out because people miss this. That we, you know, we have the second word in the Decalogue about not making any image of anything in heaven above, earth beneath, or waters under the earth, and not bowing down to them or serving them, not doing religious obeisance before them. But that never, ever was a prohibition against images in general, even images, pictures embroidery in the tabernacle itself, cherubim on the blue veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place, and other sorts of things, uh, trees. So in the temple now, we have even more of that. We have 12 bulls that hold up the sea, the basin in the courtyard. We have two pillars, Yachin and Boaz, which are pretty ornate. Uh, We have just a lot more beautification and glorification in the temple. And that's an advance. There's nothing dangerous about that. And it kind of highlights what Peter was saying at the end of the last podcast when he was giving a clarification to my comments about the exclusion of the people, the boundaries of the people in in the tabernacle. So, you know, the tabernacle temple were a place of beauty, a rallying point for people, a place where God dwells. And the intention was that the people, people themselves would be beautified. Uh, they would come there for festivals, for feasts, for uh, the know that the Lord invited them to be his people and to invite others. So it's a place of hospitality. Well, all of that gets, gets amplified now, I think. It's kind of like when, you know, when you're young and you're married, you move into an apartment. And it's great, and you can have people over. But then, as you mature and you make a little more money, uh, you buy a larger house. Not just so, not just as a social status, you know, so that people can know you're, you know, you make more money. But you have a bigger house so that you can have people over, and you beautify it. Your wife beautifies it so that it's a it's a place of peace, um, and it's an enjoyable place when not just for family, but for the people you have over. That's very. That's a very Christian uh, motivation. And that's what's going on here as well. All of this transformation of the tabernacle into a temple is about the glory of the God of Israel and the glorification of the people of God too. That theme of maturation and moving to new st- stages of glory really is, it continues to be one of the things that Jordan's work highlights that is missing in so many other accounts of biblical history, where the themes of um, sin and redemption are the only ones that really seem to frame things. And as we look through the story of um, the building of the temple, 
we can see, again, the themes of creation and recreation emerging. We can see it as the completion of the cycle of the Exodus. It occurs in the, the completion of the temple and palace complex, occurs in the 500th year after the Exodus. And we're alerted to this fact by the chrono chronology at the beginning of First Kings. This is a sort of new creation order, but it's also the completion of the Exodus cycle. It's, as it were, 10 jubilees following the, the Exodus. And the description of the building of the temple is throughout alluding to language of um, the creation. Solomon himself, his name connotes, it suggests peace, but also when it talks about the completion of all of Solomon's work, again, it highlights the connection with his name, the way in which the temple is described with the cherubim, the way it's described with all these garden, all this garden imagery, pomegranates, palms, other things like that, again, evokes the world of Eden. We have the building of the temple with a face, ribs, shoulders. And then we have at the end of the whole temple building and the description of Solomon's glories, the woman coming to Solomon, who represents the Gentiles, the Queen of Sheba. And so it seems like a new Edenic situation, but an Eden brought to a greater height. Again, this is not just an Eden that the Lord has created for man, nor is it an Eden that the exact patterns were given upon the mountain and then created, as in the case of the tabernacle. There seems to be a bit more human involvement in the process of planning this out. The vision for it given to David, and then as Solomon receives that, it seems to be elaborated in various ways. And so there's a greater place for human wisdom and ingenuity in the process of this can see in the book of Ecclesiastes, we can also see in the description of Solomon's wisdom in chapter four, that he's like a new Adam building a world for himself. He's a figure who um, speaks with wisdom about all these different parts of the creation. And there's a, a flowering of language even within this stage, because there's something of the richness of the world and its um, multiplicity coming into view. Whereas you have a very narrow vocabulary compared, um, a very thin vocabulary in um, the earlier books of scripture. When you get to something like Song of Songs, it's just filled with these novel terms and the sense of all these riches being brought in to the language and to the life of the land as it becomes a far more cosmopolitan place. And it's eyes look beyond its borders to relating to far-off lands in trade and other ways. It seems that this is representing a movement forward, but also a restoration and glorification of the original world of Eden and the creation. Yeah, uh, Alistair, another evidence of that is the introduction of music and musical instruments, evidence of God using the ingenuity of man. And it's not just Moses repeating exactly what he sees on the mountain, as you said, but now David's ingenuity goes into the creation of musical instruments and in the formation of Levitical choirs and even the Psalms. Of course, we all know that the Psalms are not just dictated. They are, are God's spirit working through 
the mind, the heart and mind of the psalmist. And that seems, as you said, to be an advance on what we had in the Mosaic era. I want to follow up on something you said, Jeff, the, the glorification of the house is parallel to the glorification of the people. And I think you can see this in more specific detail if you look at what's new in the temple as opposed to the tabernacle. And it is partly a matter of size, materials. The temple is obviously a permanent building rather than a mobile tent. But then there are a number of things that are either added or multiplied in terms of the furnishings of the temple. So in the Mosaic tabernacle, you had a single table, a golden table with showbread laid out on it. Uh, In the temple, there are 10 tables. There's a single lampstand in the tabernacle. Now there are 10 golden lampstands in the temple. So you have this multiplication, and I think all of the furnishings are pointing to something that is part of Israel's vocation, a part of their mission. They're the uh, light to the Gentiles. Uh, They're the light of the world. Their light is, as it were, under a bushel at the moment. It's inside the temple, but that's still the fact that you have these multiplication of lights is that shows shows that they have a, they have this heightened vocation and a heightened um, activity, a heightened uh, uh, reality of bringing light to the nations. And same thing with the bread on the on the on the uh, tables. There's a heightened ministry of feeding the nations, bringing the bread of life to the nations. And then you move out of the temple, and then there's, you've got this big bronze sea. Uh, that's, uh, it's a grown-up laver. The laver was in, in the tabernacle court, was used for washing. But now you have this much larger bronze sea. And it's not just a much larger, but it's on the back of 12 bulls. And again, we have a sense of that, that architectural feature of the temple is showing the heightened um, vocation of Israel. They are the 12 bulls. Uh, who are holding up, as it were, the sea of nations. That's one dimension of the symbolism. You can think of it as a kind of atlas picture, that they're the ones who are holding up the firmament. They're holding up the cosmos uh, and holding up the heavenly waters above the firmament. Uh, And then you have, uh, as Jim, I think he uh, briefly points out, he's written at length on the the water chariots that are outside the temple. You have 10 water chariots. Uh, These are basins of water, but they're set onto contraptions that have wheels and panels and they look like uh, they look like chariots or carts so it, you have this image of moving water not just water in the t- in the temple but moving water that uh, as I imagine it uh, these water chariots are stretching out from the doorway of the temple out into the courtyard and so you have this image of water flowing out from the temple and again that's a symbol of what what Israel is supposed to be so everything in the house, the specific specific features of the house are indicating something about what Israel's what Israel's mission is among the Gentiles. Picking up on something that Jeff said earlier, and also this more general theme of glorification, the place of song within the world of the temple is something that elaborates the fact that there were um, trumpets and other things within the tabernacle. But now there's a movement into something more glorious. And along with the rise in glory, there's a rise in the humanification, as it were, of what's taking place. And so as we think about the new covenant, it's very much um, that movement towards a more human form, um, not just this spiritualized form. As we often think about it, it becomes more human. Things that were formerly performed using animals, using um 
things that less accentuated human involvement now occur in very human forms. The sacrifices are represented in human activities um, that aren't mediated by animal symbols. Um, and so that movement, I think, is part of what's going on in the movement glorification here. Another dimension of the glorification is just the change in the literature of this period, of the royal period of, of the kingdom. It's interesting to me that this chapter, uh, The World of the Temple, is one of the shorter chapters. And yet, what Jim has written here has been extremely productive for um, so many of us as we've thought about this. And Jim as well. Of course, Jim has done a lot more on the kingdom and kingship and the royal phase of Israel's history than is just in this chapter. And one of the things is the change in, in literature, the change in the way in which God reveals himself, the way in which God instructs his people. So now uh, you no longer have law. Well, it's not that you no longer have law. You still do, but you add to the law uh, this wisdom literature. So we have the five you know, wisdom books, the Psalms, uh, Proverbs, Song of Songs, Job, and Ecclesiastes. And this is not just law. It's um, much more complex. And it, um, it deals with matters that, um, that a mature man or woman has to deal with in life so that Israel's becoming much more mature. As you remember in 1 Kings 8, um, Solomon prays and he prays, well, actually God asks him what he wants and he prays for wisdom and he prays for the knowledge of good and evil, to discern good and evil. This is something that, of course, that was going to be given to Adam and Eve. We talked about that in earlier chapters in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was, it was a royal investiture if they were to eat of that, where they could judge between good and evil discern. Didn't mean, of course, that they didn't know right and wrong. It meant that they could become uh, mature judges at some point uh, and discern good and evil. Anyway, Solomon gets that. And when he gets it, he begins to write proverbs, and he, be, he not only does scientific work in terms of botany and flora and fauna of Israel, but then he, he begins to write proverbs for his son uh, in preparation for his ascension to the throne and ruling. And all of these wisdom books have to do with some of the more difficult dimensions of life. You know, we thought that if you obey the law, then you'd be blessed. It's kind of a tit-for-tat automatic thing. You know, Deuteronomy 27, 28, you obey the law and you get blessed. But as it turns out, it's a little more complex than that. You have Job, who is a righteous man, and he undergoes the suffering, not because of his sin, not as a curse, because he's been unfaithful to the law, but for other reasons. And so part of the glorification that happens at this time is that the literature begins to reflect the wisdom of these kings about more dimensions of life, more areas of life, especially difficult areas like death and suffering uh, than we had before in the world of Moses. We've been focusing primarily on the, 
the temple and the glorification from the tabernacle to the temple. But there's a period prior to that that uh, that Jim summarizes in this chapter uh, that is the the end of the Mosaic order and a kind of death of the Mosaic order that leads to the resurrection of the uh, the temple. And that's part of that is in the early chapters of First Samuel, where you have uh, a kind of exodus event. We talked about this a few episodes ago when we talked about the uh, uh, the the exodus theme, and I'm pretty sure that we mentioned the the unusual exodus that you have in the beginning of First Samuel, where instead of the people of God going out of the land and into exile, the ark goes out of the land into exile, brings plagues, and then is restored to the land. But there's a there's a kind of exodus motif there. The the tabernacle is dismantled, uh, as it were, in the sense that the ark is removed. The ark is never replaced into the tabernacle. The ark goes to a separate shrine. It goes to the in, to the uh, Davidic shrine in Jerusalem, and then it's not restored to the full ta- full liturgical system until the temple is built. So you have this you have this death dismantling. Uh, Jim describes it as a kind of sacrificial tearing, uh, which takes us back to the beginning of the book where Jim talks about the the rite of transformation, the way that God remakes the world on each day of the creation week. Uh, he takes hold of it. He tears it apart. He assigns, he restructures that he signs new names. He distributes it. He leaves it for uh, humanity and the rest of creation to enjoy. And that's the kind of thing you're seeing in the early chapters of First Samuel. That's the setup for this glorification. So the glorification is not simply a, a steady progress from the tabernacle to a glorified tabernacle in the temple, but it moves through the grave. The tabernacle dies, and it when it rises again, it's something new. There's an aspect of Jim's thought that I think warrants a lot more attention, reflection, and development. Uh, he talks about some of these things in crisis, op- crisis opportunity in the Christian future, and in other contexts where you have this movement from one phase of history to another, but the emphasis upon crisis as part of the transition and how to navigate crisis, I think, is an especially timely thing to reflect upon and an aspect of his thought that um, could receive a lot more development. Right. And one of the points he's making here, and he does periodically through the whole book, is that um, the history of Israel is not, uh, you don't have um, a reversion to old order. There's There comes a time when the old order is dead. You let the dead bury their dead. And what you're working toward is not a restoration of what happened, what was the case before, but you're working toward something that is an elevation of glorification that you you can't entirely, you can't entirely foresee. I think, I think he makes this point in the course of this chapter that if you had somebody living at the time of Samuel, predicting what Israel would look like in 100 years, would they have predicted a monarchy? Would they have predicted a permanent sanctuary in the temple? Would they have predicted Jerusalem as the center? Would they, would they have predicted the kind of relations they had with Gentiles? The things that are set up in the course of that 100-year period are, are innovative, uh, they're new, and the aim is never to go back to that old system. The, the the great symbol of this is what I already mentioned, that the, the Ark of the Covenant is taken from the tabernacle, uh, stolen by the by the Philistines, and when Israel recovers it, it never goes back into its original setting. The tabernacle never is fully operational after the uh, the Battle of Aphek when the Ark is captured. So there's, a, there's, I think, a really important pastoral 
note there. And as you say, in times of crisis, there's an instinct to try to hold on what you have that that is an understandable and in some ways a good instinct. You want to you want to build on what was good in the past, but there's an instinct to cling to it and to try to restore what was what was before. That's never the biblical picture. The biblical picture is always uh, that uh, the things that went before were good, but uh, the heavens and the earth uh, grow old, and God changes the the garments of heaven and earth and creates a new heavens and a new earth, a new order of things. Uh, and that that's not only true in in biblical history, but that continues to be true in church history as the church goes through the, through these different phases and simply trying to restore and uh, recover and hold on to what was past. That's never the that's never the imperative in uh, in in a in a biblical frame. What's curious to me and and troubling in some ways is, and I'm not sure you guys might have an answer or some answers to this, but almost immediately when the monarchy is established, you have Saul who um, doesn't live up to the ideals. Then you have David who makes a series of really bad mistakes. And then you have Solomon who of course is David's son and builds the temple, um, which is very promising, but then he uh, becomes a tyrant, as we've already noticed, and breaks all the laws of kingship that was established in Deuteronomy 17, um, which which reminds us that God at least envisioned the Israelites becoming a kingdom at some point. And so the king was supposed to meditate on, on the law, but apparently that didn't happen with Solomon. And then, of course, his son, Rehoboam. So the kingdom uh, has this glorious aspect, but it doesn't last very long. Rehoboam, of course, listens to all his young advisors and is not wise, doesn't follow the advice of his father in the Proverbs to listen to the company of the wise men, the older wise men. And the social fabric is again rent, and the people in the north are then made to worship at Bethel so that they don't, they can't even come down to the Solomon's temple anymore. So all of this is a little bit troubling and curious. Is it, is this just an example of how an instance, uh, as we have many in the old world of how, I don't know, just showing the, the, uh, frailty of the flesh of, uh, that the people of Israel were going to fail. It was going. It was going to die in some in some ways, and and all in preparation for Jesus. I, I'm not sure what you guys think of that. Well, as you say, it's a pretty pretty consistent pattern. If you if you take Jim's understanding of the of the original fall of Adam, this happens on the first Sabbath. Jim doesn't think there's any passage of time. Uh, he thinks that it happens immediately when the tabernacle is set up. As soon as the tabernacle has they finish the ordination of the priest. They finish the consecration of the sanctuary. Nadab and Abihu take their strange fire into the tabernacle, and they're dead in the tabernacle, which means everything has to start all over again. You've got to you've got to cleanse the whole tabernacle system and reboot it completely. So there's there is this pattern all the way through the Old Testament where a system is set up and a covenant is made, and then there seems to be a a, a very rapidly there seems to be a fall out of that. Uh, sometimes it's you know with Noah, it's a matter of uh, one of his sons that uh, acts badly, 
in other cases, it seems to reverberate through the entirety of Israel, like Solomon's sins divide Israel completely. And then you have you have faithful kings, of course, in the southern kingdom, but you, the northern kingdom is never faithful. Uh, and you have the divided kingdom up until the time of the exile. So yeah, uh, that's not really an explanation, but it does highlight the fact that this isn't just a problem with the monarchy. Uh, I think that, again, insofar as, again, this is more a, a matter of symmetry. I think it fits to me, to my mind, with what you find uh, in First and Second Samuel, where you have the establishment of the monarchy. And the issue there throughout the throughout the book, or one of the issues that runs throughout the book, is the, is the failure of intergenerational continuity. So you have Samuel, who's the great judge and prophet, and he's the one who establishes the monarchy and the conditions for the monarchy, but his sons are unfaithful. You have David, uh, who is the first king, a king after God's own heart, and yet uh, he's got a bunch of sons who are, um, who are uh, worthless sons of Belial. Uh, weirdly, uh, intriguingly, the one, uh, the one uh, second generation character that's uh, that is a uh, is godly is Jonathan, who's the son of Saul. <laughs> so um, you got the major failed character of First and Second Samuel is the one who has the faithful son. But you have this problem of intergenerational continuity. Jeff, you mentioned the Solomon and Rehoboam, same kind of thing. Uh, you have that peri- periodically happens through the uh, through the Book of Kings, where you have kings who uh, lead various revivals and restorations, purification movements, but then their sons are unfaithful. To me, that's the that's a recurring problem, and it seems to be characteristic of the Old Covenant. And I take the promise at the end of Malachi that the Lord is going to come and turn the hearts of the fathers to the sons and the sons to the fathers as a promise that that, will, that intergenerational wound will be healed in the, in the New Covenant, that the Spirit comes and will wed together fathers and sons and mothers and daughters, and there'll be a, a possibility for long-term generational continuity uh, by the gift of the Spirit. That's as far as I've been able to think through it. But I, I, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a problem that's there all over the Old Covenant, but I'm pretty sure of the promise of, uh, uh, of Malachi that that's, that's part of what the New Covenant is coming to solve. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.